So our scripture reading today is from John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, and verses 25 through 35. You can find this on page 891 of that pew Bible in your, in your pew. And if you don't own a Bible, we would really love for you to take this one home with you, um, just as a gift from us. So let's read together. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is at the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had been eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of the Lord.
Well, good morning and welcome again to Christ Community. Uh, at the core of what it means to be a Christian is to come to a place where you believe deep inside of you that the words of that song are true, that indeed Jesus is no rival, no equal. As we continue our service together and looking at uh, this passage of Scripture that we heard uh, read for us just a moment ago, I want to pause and pray and ask that God's Spirit, who inspired those words in the first place in John, uh, would be at work in a fresh way this morning, applying those words to our lives. So let me do that for us now. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. We're thankful that you have not only inspired the authors who wrote it so that it would be recorded without error, but that you have preserved it. You've given people skill with languages to be able to translate it into uh, a language that we can read and understand. We pray now that your word, the seed of your word sown among us, would bear much fruit. We pray this in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I want you to think this morning about the time in your life when you were the hungriest. So I don't know when that was. Maybe you were on a, a long flight or something and you didn't want to eat the food or you got stuck in a long car. I don't know what it is. But just think about the time in your life when you were hungriest. For me, at least the most recently, the time that I when I was the hungriest was, was back in, in 2020. So it's kind of a funny story. I think we can start telling some funny stories from 2020 uh, now. And this is one of those. And this was early on in 2020. So this is April of 2020. So we were still in the, in the depths of kind of the, the lockdown, stay-at-home orders. And we're preparing for Easter and Good Friday. That was coming, if you kind of remember that season. And we at Christ Community, we were, uh, were not, our buildings were not open at that point, so we were doing that at home. We were preparing to celebrate Good Friday and Easter at home. And, and Rachel, my wife, and I, we've been kind of practicing the discipline of fasting more in that season, just in the light of the pandemic and uh, all of that. And so we thought, well, maybe we, this was kind of a newer spiritual discipline of fasting for us. We thought, well, maybe let's try to do like a, an extended fast. Like from the, we eat dinner on Thursday night and then we wouldn't eat again until Easter Sunday morning. We'd fast all day on Good Friday and, and Saturday. But we'll just, we'll try this. You know, it'd be the longest we'd ever done this, but this seems like a season to do that. So we did that. And so by Saturday morning, you know, it's been like 36 hours without food. I'm really hungry, which that would have been enough in of itself. But this was the day uh, that we had agreed that I was going to help Rachel uh, dye her hair why, Bill, would you be the one doing this? Because the pandemic, you can't go anywhere to have this done. So I had to drive, I think, to three different beauty supply stores that day to find all the supplies we needed. And then we get there to do this. I'm starving. And I'm freaked out because I had watched some YouTube videos on how to do this, and I'd seen all the ways this can go horribly wrong. <laughs> and I'm so afraid. But one, I just didn't want to do this. So I kind of went into it with a bad attitude. I did not want to do this. I was scared about messing it up, but we had help. So we had a professional, uh, you know, hair person. This is what she does. She was on FaceTime with us, a friend of ours. She's on FaceTime. She's walking me through how to do this. Like, Bill, you're going to do great. It's, it's not that bad. And I've got this, like, these foils and this, like, bleachy goop stuff, and I'm putting it on, and I just have a terrible attitude because I'm so hungry. And, and finally, Rachel just, you know, gives up, and she says, Bill, like, you're you can't do this. Like, you have such a terrible attitude about it. We have this big fight. She ends up rigging up this big, arc, um, like, mirror thing so she can just do it herself. She can see the back of her head to do these 
hair dyeing things. And I just remember in that moment, as I'm trying to put these foils and this paste into her hair, just, like all I could think about was just how hungry I was. And I began to sympathize a little bit more with the Israelites in the desert. You know, it's kind of, they're complaining because I haven't eaten in three days. I'm like, okay, I've, I get it now. I mean, they're, they're grumbling. That makes sense. Because when you're that hungry, sort of you, all you can think about is the hunger. Because it's one of our single most powerful drives in life. Because after a while, no food, there's no life, right? There's a reason we have this. There's no food, there's no life and again, this is, I think, precisely why the spiritual discipline of fasting is a powerful one, because it puts us in touch with our deepest needs and deep dependence. Uh, and I know a number of you tried out that discipline, maybe for the first time in our last sermon series with the Formed Life, which is our kind of spiritual formation companion uh, to our sermon series. And, and doing that Ecclesiastes series, the discipline of uh, fasting was one of the ones that we explored together in that. Um, but when you don't have food, everything becomes more difficult, and we feel this physically, but Jesus wants us to see this morning that physical hunger is a sign pointing us to a deeper hunger, a deeper need, a need for spiritual food, a need for a deeper kind of life. And so we're in this new series starting this morning, back in the Gospel of John, we're calling it Signs of Life. And John uses this language of signs throughout his account of who Jesus is to point us to the life that is available to us through trust in Jesus. And as John writes his uh, gospel account, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's really answering two questions with what he's written in the gospel, and that is, who is Jesus, and what does it mean to, to trust in him, to believe in him, to come to faith in him? Those are, the, those are the two primary questions that John is, is asking, so, or is answering in his gospel. And so as you read uh, the gospel of John on your own, if, if you're following along with, with the formed life, if you're uh, here on Sunday mornings through the sermon series, just keep in mind, this is what John, in every verse of his gospel, every chapter he's walking through with us. Who is Jesus, and what does it mean to believe in him? Now, in John's gospel, there are these signs pointing us to the source of life and how to have it. And today, like hungry folks on a long road trip, when you drive by one of those blue signs that says there's food up at this exit, Jesus is going to show us a true source of life. So let's take a look here in John chapter 6. So uh, if you are uh, newer to the Bible, you can grab one of those pew Bibles, page 851. Um, there are four gospel accounts in the New Testament. So if you find the New Testament part of the Bible, then you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And that's where we're at this morning, John chapter 6. Now, you may not know this, but John chapter 6 records this, this miracle of Jesus, which is called the feeding of the 5,000. It's actually the only miracle of Jesus that's recorded in all four Gospels. So each Gospel writer uh, is trying to get us to see a particular part of who Jesus is, a, an aspect of who he is. They each kind of have a, a, their own approach to telling the story of Jesus, and so they're, they can't tell everything, so they're picking um, particular, whether it's teachings of Jesus or accounts and events in Jesus' life, and they're putting them together. But this particular moment is recorded in all four Gospels, which just means, I think, it's significant that we should really pay close attention to this one. And John tells us in verse 1 and 2, he sets up the scene for us. And notice the language of signs that he uses in this passage. This is John chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, 
which is also called the Sea of Tiberias. And a large cloud, crowd was following him. Why? Because they saw the signs that Jesus was doing on the sick. So they had seen that Jesus was healing sick people and they started following him. All this is taking place in this area. I've got a little map here. Can you kind of get orientation of where all these events are happening? So this is the region of Galilee. You see that, that's big bold type up there in the corner. Um, Jesus is from Nazareth. So that is where he grew up and that's that little circle at the lower part of the map there. That's the, the, the town, the village of Nazareth. That's where Jesus was a carpenter, um, where he'd been doing that work. Cana up above is where he did the first one of his signs, John calls it in John chapter 2, is for some of his miracles of turning water into wine. Again, you may remember some of these because we were in the Gospel of John earlier this year in January. So John is, is telling us these stories, and now the events of this, this feeding of the 5,000 moment, that rectangle on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, we don't know exactly where this takes place. It's kind of out in the, the wilderness area, but somewhere in that rectangle, these events are taking place on the other side of the Sea of Galilee from those uh, spots where Jesus has been spending a lot of his time. And so Jesus sees this crowd that has followed him over there. Many have taken this road trip to come with him, and he sees their weakness and their hunger. Now, isn't it a gift to know this morning, I just want to pause here, that Jesus sees our desires and our needs even before we bring them to him. Even before anyone in that crowd says, Jesus, we're hungry, he sees their hunger, he sees their need. And even this morning, if you were literally hungry, Jesus sees that. He knows that. And so as Jesus sees this huge crowd of people, John tells us that it's 5,000 men, which means that that's a kind of family units or whatever. There's a lot of people. If you include women and children, this is probably 15,000 people. It's a huge, massive crowd of people. And Jesus says to one of his disciples, I love that John includes here, I don't know if you picked this up in the scripture reading, that he's saying this to test Philip because Jesus knew what he was going to do. But he says to Philip, where will we buy bread to feed all these people? And I, I imagine it's almost like Philip says here, okay, I'm going to give you kind of a little quick kind of lesson in some basic facts, Jesus. Philip, let's do some math. Jesus, I know you're a carpenter, Philip says. And I can imagine saying, I know, I know you've done a lot in the carpenter shop, Jesus. I don't know how much time you spent with like catering, party planning here. We've got 15,000 people here, okay? So Jesus, let's just say we get an amazing deal on catering at Chick-fil-A or something. $5 box lunches. If we get even that great deal, we got 15,000 people, we'll do that quick. That's like $75,000, Jesus, to feel these people. We do not have that kind of money. And then Andrew jumps in, almost as if to say, yeah, just to point out, to highlight the reality of Jesus. He's like, hey, there's this kid here. He's got a Lunchable. Uh, what are we going to do? Do something with that, Jesus? This is like all the food we have. And I love Jesus' response. Verse 10. He just says, have the people sit down. And then John records this little detail. I love these little details that John throws in. He says, and there was much grass in that place. Now, I don't know, maybe there's a cannabis joke to be made there. There's a lot of grass in this place. People at the munchies uh, here out, they're all hungry. But what Jesus is doing here, and what I think John wants us to see, why he includes that little line about there being much grass in that place, is he's showing us Jesus is the good shepherd. Think of Psalm 23. He leads the sheep to green pastures, places of rich abundance of provision. 
So I think it's not just that John wants to say, hey, there was a big field there, there was lots of room for them to sit down, but no, this is, this is good shepherd imagery. Jesus is leading this flock to a place of green abundance. And this theme throughout John comes up again and again that Jesus offers an abundance of life, an abundance of provision, more than enough. This was the case with the miracle of turning the water into wine in Cana, right? Jesus turns these massive jars of water into wine. There's, there's more than enough for the party. Here, when he does feed all these people with this little lunchable that this kid brings, this barley loaves and fish, there's 12 baskets left over. It's more than enough. More than enough. Life with Jesus is a life without lack. It's a, a life that is more than enough. And the people who experience this feeding the miracle, they, they get it. Uh, the deliverance is in the air. I mean, we don't have time to go into all these allusions and, uh, and references back, but you can tell John has in mind the Exodus account here. They're kind of on the other side of the Jordan. They're getting ready to cross over. Jesus is the prophet like Moses who's providing bread in the wilderness. They get that, and they say, okay, finally, the one who came, just like Moses, to rescue the people from Egypt and from Pharaoh has now come to deliver us from Rome, and they want to make him king on the spot. And Jesus immediately, he withdraws by himself in solitude into the mountains. Now, we're going to spend a lot more time on that next week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that today. But I noted earlier that just as the one miracle account that's in all four Gospels, and what's unique, though, about what John tells in this miracle account is that he doesn't just tell the story of how Jesus fed the 5,000 that day. He tells us the story of the conversation that happens between him and the crowd the next day when they want more food from him. So let's take a look at that part of the story you go down to verse 25, it's the next day, and the crowd, they're looking for him, and, and they see Jesus, and they, hey, Jesus, when did you get here? They're now back on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus says, you just want more food, and you'll just leave hungry again, because that's what food does. Like, it fills you up, right, for an hour a day, but then you're hungry again, right? You eat breakfast, but you're hungry for lunch. You eat lunch, you're hungry for dinner. You wake up the next morning, you're ready for breakfast again. He says, you have no idea how what I did there was pointing you really to something more deep that you hunger for, a better food. That was just the appetizer, setting up the main course, which I have also, which by the way, he's going to say in a minute, is me. I am the thing that you are looking for. And over and over again, though, the people, they don't understand what Jesus is saying. It's a lot of what John chapter 6 is. (laughs) Then Jesus saying something, then misunderstanding, Jesus saying something else, then misunderstanding, back and forth. But the thing to recognize here is that Jesus knows our hunger better than we do. And part of a life of following Jesus is coming to the place where you recognize that Jesus actually knows your needs more deeply than you do. And trusting him to provide for maybe what you don't feel like is most important, but what he says is. They think that food is the priority, and it's clear that Jesus meets them there. By the way, the Bible never separates sort of spiritual and physical needs. We are spiritual and physical creatures. All of them are bound together. But his main goal is to get them to a place where they can see that they have a deeper hunger that physical food is never going to satisfy. The bread that he gave them was a sign pointing to something more, more sustaining, more satisfying. 
And Jesus keeps trying to explain that need to them, that there is something deeper here that you need that I have for you to offer. And they're like, oh, like manna, like what Moses did in the wilderness. And Jesus says, well, no, that was God who did that. That was actually Moses who did that. And my father has given you true bread. And they said, well, give us that bread always, Jesus. It's like these people really like bread, which I get it. You know, bread is really good. He says, I'm from heaven. I'm who you're looking for not just what you're looking for. I am the who you are looking for, not just the physical bread you need, but I am the one. That's what the sign was pointing to. This morning, if you're taking notes, I encourage you to to write this down, because I think that this is the heart of what John is telling us in this account. Is that only Jesus can satisfy us forever. Only Jesus can satisfy you forever. That's what Jesus is teaching us to hear. This is what John wants us to see this morning. Only Jesus can satisfy you forever. So as we reflect on this, I want us to, there's kind of three takeaways here. I want us to look at some two observations and then a next step. And, and the first observation, I'll just put it like this, that, that we, we want a Lunchable, but Jesus says you need real food. Uh, we, we want this snack that will satisfy us for a moment, but Jesus says you need real food. You see this in verse 26. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You don't really want me. You want more food. You're saying, don't work for food that perishes, but for food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And you think about this with physical food, right? If you eat a bunch of cookies and candy 15 minutes before you're going to sit down to a meal, right, it, it, it stunts your, your appetite. You're not that hungry for the meal that's before you, but you know, at least I, this is the way it is with my kids, like they eat a snack right before dinner, they don't eat their dinner, and then, what, an hour later, mom, dad, I'm hungry. And we do this in, in the spiritual realm all the time where we feel that ache, we feel a loneliness, we feel that something's not right, we feel an anxiety, but we try to cover that with, I'm going to work, or I'm gonna, and I'm going to achieve, or I'm going to distract myself with YouTube and Netflix, or I'm going to try to satisfy that longing with some sort of pleasure, or food, sex, some other kind of thing that will, will just numb for a minute those realities. But the, the problem with that, there's actually two problems with it. One, as Jesus says here, clearly, like, you just get hungry again. So maybe that works for a day or a month or six months or a year, but then the project is wrapped up at work or you get a new job or, or you lose your job and the achievement is no longer doing what it did for you anymore. Or you just need more food or more drink or more sex or whatever it is to fill the void. It just doesn't last. You're still hungry. And then also, here's the other problem. When you numb that pain, that ache of anxiety or loneliness or, or longing for meaning or whatever it is, when you begin to numb that, you can't just selectively numb. You end up numbing not just the pain, but also joy. You flatten everything else in life out. So that everything is less rich. Everything is less meaningful. You, you can't just pick out that one thing and quiet it. When you quiet that, you quiet everything else. You're more disconnected from family, from friends, distraction, the very things that will give you what you long for the most. So we want Jesus to sort of give us that snack, that brief satisfaction, and then to leave us alone. But he says you need real food. 
You need me. He says, I am the bread of life. Uh, So that's the first thing here. (laughs) To put it in those terms, we want that lunchable, we want that snack, but Jesus says, you need real food, you need me. Uh, Here's the second thing, that we want understanding so often, and Jesus says, what you need to do is eat. We want understanding, but Jesus says, you have to eat. Uh, What do I mean by that? The, The Jewish crowds, the leaders, they, they argue with Jesus. That's what, what chapter 6 is. They, they want to fully understand his claims. They actually want him to do more signs before they will trust in him, believe him, follow him. But Jesus says actually faith is the only way to understanding. He says you have to eat in order to understand. That's the metaphor for faith, for believing that Jesus uses in this passage. John, in his gospel, as he records Jesus' words, uses lots of different sort of metaphors, pictures to talk about what does it mean to believe in Jesus. Here it is to eat and drink Jesus' own life. That's the imagery that, that Jesus employs here. But so often I think we, th- we think about faith as something that we do in the absence of evidence. So, you know, there's not enough evidence for me to, to, to know for sure, and so I have to have faith in the absence of evidence. But, but a biblical faith is not a, an, a, a belief in the absence of evidence, or even much less than that, a, a belief in the face of contradictory evidence. True faith is a different kind of knowing altogether. It's a different mode of knowing that Jesus invites us to. That actually builds on evidence. That's what John is doing in recording all of these miracles and accounts and teachings of Jesus. He says, I'm writing this down so that you may believe. I'm giving you evidence. So, but but you, you can't just come to know only through evidence. You also have to have a relationship which comes through faith. It's a different kind of knowing. This is what Jesus says. Take a look at verse 53. He says, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Now, I think Jesus is being intentionally provocative here, but he's saying what it means to have faith in me, to believe in me, is to take your own life, my own life into you, to be that connected to me. And again, the Jewish people, these leaders, they are like, what kind of, what's happening? This guy advocating some kind of cannibalism on on his own life? But Jesus is saying, no, this is what I'm come to me, believe in me. But believing in me in this sense is not sort of just an abstract kind of assenting to a fact. Like, I I believe that a mile is 5,280 feet long. Oh, I also believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Those are just kind of facts I keep. This is like, that's why Jesus is saying it's, it's actually taking my life into you. This is a relationship of trust where everything about you changes. You reorient everything around me. This is not just a fact you add to your sort of folder one way to put this is not sort of an app that you download, but it's, a, it's an entire change of the operating system of your phone. And, and I think about, I, I was trying to think of ways to kind of get at this. And, and I thought this week about our, our cats. We have three cats, and we, they live kind of mostly on the lower level of our house, and in that kind of unfinished part of the basement we, where we keep their food, and there's a sink where we fill up their water dishes, and they have a box full of the canned food, and we have a, a container that's full of their dry food. And so they have everything that they, they need there, but because they're cats, they can't open the container. 
They can't work a can opener. They can't turn on the faucet. And so, you know, they can be present with all of the abundance of life that they need, but unless we open that way to them, unless we come down and open the can of food, turn on the water, they will die. And Jesus is saying that this is where you are outside of the garden, separated from God, that there's an abundance of life, but unless my Father, unless my Father is drawing you to me, you will not come. But here's the incredible good news. If you sense Jesus drawing you to himself now, there's nothing that can prevent that from coming to fruition. And that when you come to Jesus in faith, he says, I will never cast you out. I will raise you up on the last day that you can have an abundance of life that begins now and that will never end. So the question then is, how do we How do we eat? How do we feast on Jesus and believe in him in this way? That's what I want to look at in this, this final, kind of this next step here. How do we, how to feast on Jesus by faith? How do we actually do that? Again, this is, this is the way that Jesus is saying, this is what it means to believe in me. If you want to feast on Jesus by faith, the first step is coming to believe that he is not just a mere human that he was more than just a good teacher. That he is the one who, when he says, I am the bread of life, that he actually means that. One of the things that John shows us over and over again is Jesus makes outrageous claims if he's only a human. If Jesus is not the Son of God, God actually become human with us, then the things that he says here are incredibly arrogant or incredible deceptions. But having faith in Jesus means coming to believe that he is actually exactly who he said he was. The God of the universe, born as a baby, truly God, truly human, to give his life for us. It it means wanting Jesus for who he is, not just for what he provides. And again, Jesus knows what we need. He's the good shepherd who's promised to provide us with what we need. Those things are not in opposition, but so often we only go to Jesus to get what we think we need, but we don't want him. Jesus, give me your stuff, but I don't want you. We don't quite pray it like that, but often that's how we functionally interact with him. We only go to him with particular needs. We don't want him. Maybe we're neutral on him, but we just want his things. A, A true faith, though, in Jesus says, Thank you for providing all that I need, Jesus. And also you alone are enough for me. And here's the deal. When you eat from Jesus in that way, when you feed on him in faith in that way, he he promises in verse 37 that all the Father, who the Father gives to me, will come. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That when you have that kind of a relationship with Jesus, it will never end, that he will always guard you, always keep you safe, that no matter what happens. And why this is such good news is because maybe you're sitting here this morning and you look at your life and you say, I have screwed up way too much. And Jesus says, no, if I'm drawing you, you will come. Like, you can't not come. You're going to come. And what's more is you will never be passed out. 
And because it's all by grace, it doesn't matter how much you feel like you are worthless, how much shame you feel, how much anxiety you feel, how much un- unsettledness you feel, how much unworthy you feel. Jesus is saying, if I am drawing you, if you are sensing the love and affection of Jesus this morning and him drawing you to himself, he will never cast you out. And it means that there's nothing that you've done that can stand in the way. He also promises in verse 40 that if you feed on him in this way, if you come to know him in faith in this way, if you, if you have this knowing of him by faith, he says, for I, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son of Man and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Friends, this time yesterday, I was doing a funeral. Actually, pray about this moment in time we were lowering that casket into the grave. And every one of us will face that moment. Every one of us. Maybe tomorrow, maybe in 40 years, maybe in 60 years. I don't know how old you are, how much time God has given you. Every one of us will face that moment. But Jesus says, if you have feasted on me in faith, that the grave will not have the last word in your life that that will not be the end of the story, but that you will be raised to new life and a life everlasting. We begin to feed on Jesus through his word. Actually, at the end of John chapter six, it's a really long chapter, it's like 71 verses, so we're preaching it over several weeks here. But in a couple weeks, we're actually gonna hear the disciples say to Jesus, you have the words of eternal life, where else can we go? Jesus' words are eternal life to us. And so one of the ways we've, we've created these, uh, this whole formed life program, there's a companion journal that goes, it's like an online uh, tool primarily, the form.life, but there's this companion journal, you can pick these up in the back. And the discipline that we focus on in this season is the discipline of studying, of studying God's words, because in them, he communicates his life to us. And one of the ways that we do that, that we meditate on Jesus' word, the way we get it inside of us is to memorize it. Now, if you've done the formed life with us before, you would know kind of each week there'd be a short passage, typically on Wednesdays, to, to memorize or to meditate on. We're doing something a little different in this season of it, where at the beginning here, there's a longer text. It's actually from John chapter 6. And instead of just picking uh, several random verses to memorize each week, disconnected. We're actually going to spend the whole season of the form life focusing on memorizing this one longer passage. It's not, still not real long, eight or nine verses. But it's from this text. And so if you haven't jumped in with this before, I'd encourage you to pick up one of these journals. Um, you can read about how this works. You go to the website. Um, there's lots of tools. There's even little videos each, mo- each Monday morning kind of orienting you to the passage that we're going to study uh, for next week. Um, actually, I think I'm up on the video for this week, so check that out if you want to see a sneak, sneak preview of where the sermon's going to be next week. Um, but it's a great resource to help you feed on God's Word throughout the week. We also feed on Him by faith as we celebrate communion together as a church family. It's why we do that every single week. Because it's a deep symbol, communion is, of our need, our desperate need, and God's provision for us. So in a moment, we're going to do that. But as we close here, I want to read you a passage from one of C.S. Lewis's books, The Chronicles of Narnia. 
And in that uh, seven book series, the, one of the ones I think maybe people know less is called The Horse and His Boy. If you're not familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia at all, it's a children's story. There's talking animals, so just you need to, be, you need to know that as I read this for it to make sense. There's talking animals. There's a lion named Aslan who kind of represents Jesus. And there's, there's children. So in this passage I'm going to read, there's, there's a, a, a girl named Arvis and two horses, one wise, one foolish, And it's such a great picture of what John is communicating to us about Jesus here. Listen to these words. One of the children is asking the horse, Bree, about this lion. And she wants to know, is he he a real lion? So she says this. But but is he a, a, a real lion? No, no, of course not, said Bree, the horse, in a rather shocked voice. But all the stories say he is, replied Arvis. And, and if he isn't a lion, why do you call him a lion, Bree? To which Bree says, well, you'd hardly understand at your age. And I was only a little foal when I left, so I don't quite understand it myself. And then Lewis notes this, and Bree was standing with his back to a green wall while he said this, and the other two were facing him, and he was talking in a rather superior tone with his eyes half shut. And that's why he didn't see the changed expression on the faces of Huynh, the other horse, and Arvis, the girl. And they had good reason to have their mouths open and staring eyes, because while Bree spoke, they saw an enormous lion leap up from the outside and balance on top of the green wall, only it was a brighter yellow and a bigger and more beautiful and more alarming lion than any they had ever seen. And at once it jumped down inside the wall and began approaching Bree, the horse, from behind, and it made no noise at all. And Huynh and Arvis couldn't make any noise themselves, no more than if they had been frozen. No doubt, continued Bree, when they speak of him as a lion, they mean only as strong as a lion, or to our enemies as fierce as a lion. Of course, of that kind, even a little girl, you, Arvis, must see that it would be quite absurd for him to be a real lion. Indeed, it would be disrespectful. If he was a lion, he'd have to be a beast, just like the rest of us. Why? And here Bree began to laugh. If he was a lion, he'd have four paws and a tail and whiskers, and then, ah, help! For just as he said the word whiskers, one of Aslan's had tickled his ear. And Bree shot away like an arrow to the other side of the enclosure, and there turned, and the wall was too high for him to jump, and he could fly no further. And friends, this is my favorite part. Arvis and Huynh both stared back. There was a second of intense silence. And then Huynh, shaking all over, gave a strange little neigh and trotted across to the lion. Please, she said. You're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. Dearest daughter, Aslan said, planting a lion's kiss on her twitching velvet nose, I knew you would not be long in coming to me. Joy shall be yours. Then he lifted his head and spoke in a louder voice. Now, Bree, he said, you poor, proud, frightened horse, draw near. Nearer still, my son, do not dare not to dare. Touch me, smell me, here are my paws, this is my tail, these are my whiskers, I am a true beast. Aslan said Bree in a shaking voice, I am afraid I must be rather a fool. Happy the horse who knows that while he is still young, or the human either. Draw near. Friends, those are Jesus' words to you this morning. Draw near. Feast on him by faith. Pray that that's the what you hear from Jesus this morning. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, you are drawing many to yourself. And for those of us who you have drawn near, would we be refreshed in that drawing? For those who are here, maybe who have never put their faith in you, maybe they thought they had. Maybe they've been coming to church for a long time, but maybe for the first time they recognize that I've never truly understood what it means to trust Jesus, and I want to do that today. Would your drawing of them be so inescapable, so unmistakable, that they would leave this place forever changed? We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit who's able to bring us to new life that we might hear your voice and follow it. Amen.